the law is intended to do. The law is a mirror. And yes, it shows us what God is like, uh, and it shows us what we are like as well. Um, And just like a mirror can't get the dirt off of your face, so the law cannot scrub the dirt out of your soul. And we're going to talk about that. So I want you to have that frame as we, as we go uh, into this commandment, as we talk about the law. Remember what it's for. Uh, it is to show us what God is like and to confront us on what we are like. And because today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I'm actually going to move out of order a little bit. I'm going to skip ahead in the law and we're going to talk about uh, the Sixth Commandment uh, which I'm going to read in just a second, which is do not murder. But today is, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, tomorrow, if I'm right, marks the 45th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision to legalize abortion. Since that decision, an estimated 60 million babies have been aborted, and that is more than Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong combined. Uh, And as tragic and as sad as that is, it is not the only life issue on the table in our culture. Euthanasia, particularly the elderly, has become a major cultural issue, right? As we lose the value of human life, um, now you have insurance companies. Now as as doctor-assisted suicide is being legalized in different states in our country, country you have... um, you have insurance companies who will tell their clients that instead of offer instead of paying for this particular treatment the insurance company will pay for this pill that the person can take to end their life that's where we that's where we are moving as a culture as we lose the value of life it is not just the preborn who are uh, who are being killed but also uh, the elderly and so we need to hear again God's word, which uh, corrects our view of life and understanding of life, uh, but also locates us in there as well. So um, all of those things are on the table today as we talk about the sixth commandment. So let's give attention to God's word. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read the preface of the commandments, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to read verse 13. <clears throat> and God spoke... All these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. Let's pray together. God in heaven, often uh, we want to use the law as a club against others. Uh, Would you open our eyes to see how... Your law penetrates our hearts. Would you hold it before us like the mirror that it is? Reveal to us our own sin, Uh, Lord, so that we would have a right understanding of who we are. Uh, Lord, that we would also be ready to extend mercy uh, as you extend mercy. Would you help us to make wise decisions based on your character? Uh, And all of this we pray uh, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, so, so using that framework that every command is both a revelation and a confrontation, that's how this sermon, that's where we're going to unfold this commandment. We're going to begin by talking about what God is like. God is the giver of life. God is the giver and lover of life. And therefore, life should be protected. Life should be valued and protected. So we're going to begin with God, what this commandment says about him. And then we're going to move to ourselves and how it confronts and challenges us. And then, as if it wasn't challenging enough, we're going to see how Jesus uh, deepens this commandment, deepens our understanding of it, how Jesus defines what it means to murder. And then finally, we're going to talk about how murderers come clean. All right? So that's just kind of how this is going to unfold. Let's begin with this idea that God is the giver and lover of life. And to prove this point, to make this point, you don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 1. 
You know, it's a, it's a new year. Uh, lots of people uh, start Bible reading plans at the beginning of the year. Uh, if you're me, those plans usually last to like January the 3rd. Uh, some of you are a little more disciplined and you make it to the third week of January. But whatever the case may be, if you've begun reading the Bible through in a year, you've probably read Genesis 1 a lot, right? Um, so, but... If you read Genesis chapter 1 and and God's account or its account of creation, there's a couple of things that you'll notice. One, of course, God is the creator, right? And he is the one who creates everything out of nothing, right? Uh, Creates all things out of nothing in the space of six days with his word, right? And he calls it all very good. But if you read it again and again, if you really get into the words there... I want you to see what kind of creation God makes. Like as you, as you read particularly days 4, 5, and 6, as God begins to fill up the creation that he has made, the only word that I can come away from reading that is, is fullness, right? I mean, it's, it's like this explosion of noise and fur and feathers. Uh, God's God's creation, when you read through Genesis 1, looks like this overflowing fountain of life everywhere, in the skies, in the seas, on the land. It's beautiful. And as God looks at each part of his creation, he says it's good. That this creator, this creator doesn't create just some gray, barren landscape on which life can just kind of hope to scratch by. He creates this beautiful, diverse place filled with all kinds of different color and noise and life. That is God, the giver and lover of life. And then he does something unique, something different in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So let's look at that very quickly because there's a lot we could say. It's I could have a sermon all of its own. God does something very different on the sixth day. God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The creator makes a special creature. This creature is different from all of the other creatures. This creature is made in God's image. And his role in this creation is to rule over the rest of it all. God gives his very good creation into the hands of this special creature whom he calls man. Because man is different. Man is made in the image of God. Humanity is meant to work and to keep the creation and to fill up the earth, to multiply, subdue it. So, so man is made in God's image. And this idea is so important that it's repeated three times in these two verses. Moses is making a point. Man, not monkeys, man, not cats, man, not dogs, man, not pine trees, man, not asteroids. Man is made in God's image. The gem, the bright, sparkling, rarest of diamonds in this, in this beautiful creation is humanity. Man and woman made in God's image. They are the pinnacle. They are in charge. Which means that in a few chapters, when they rebel, when this creature, man, rebels against the Creator, it will break the rest of creation. And the rest of the Bible chronicles the story of how God will pursue and redeem man. Not dogs, cats, pine trees, or asteroids. God, the rest of the Bible is about God's rescuing man. 
what the lengths that God will go to to redeem this image of his in creation. And so, um, God, we'll, we'll talk more about how God works to redeem and rescue humanity in a little bit. But just so you get a picture of how valuable human life is to the Creator, right? What it means to be made in the image of God. I want you to flip over from there to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. This is after the flood. And so we should say right there, there's a lot that could be said about that. That God, because God is the giver of life, He is the creator, He is its author, He also has the right to take it away. He is the giver and taker of life. But that's a whole other sermon. Genesis chapter 9, uh, this is after the flood. Noah and his family have left the ark. Uh, they build an altar and they worship the Lord. And God begins to tell Noah how things are going to work in this new creation, this, this world post-flood. And the first thing we see is that there's going to be that the tension, the brokenness that sin ushers in is still there. That there will, as God tells Noah, the fear of the animals will be on you, right? That that there will be this tension between creation and and mankind. So things are not safe. Things are not better after the flood. And so God says this in Genesis nine five. <clears throat> For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." That tells us right there is that, that man's lifeblood, even, even, even in sin, even the broken image of man is so valuable to God that if it is taken, it is to be paid for. That, that man's lifeblood, as sinful as it is, is not to be taken lifely, lightly because man is made in God's image. Man is special. The same thing is not said about giraffes and elephants. Man's lifeblood is unique and special because man is made in the image of God and therefore human life is to be valued and guarded. And right away, there are several implications that flow out of this idea of the image of God, this teaching on the image of God. Um, In the movie Braveheart, which was my favorite movie in high school uh, and in college, because Every guy loves Braveheart or Gladiator or I don't know what guys like now, but um, those were good movies back then. But there's a scene in Braveheart. Uh, Braveheart is about uh, the Scottish freedom fighter named William Wallace. Um, Scotland is under British occupation. And so there's a point at which there are some, some British uh, soldiers in Wallace's village uh, and they try, to, um, they try to hurt William Wallace's wife. Uh, and in the process, uh, Wallace defends his wife, attacks the soldiers, and then they try to escape. They go their different ways. Wallace's wife is captured, and she's brought back to the garrison, and she's tied on a post, uh, and she is executed. Um, I'm not going to get into the rightness of that uh, and what happens after that, but it's in the, the, the guy in charge, the... Um, the mayor of the town, so to speak, he says something interesting it's before he executes Wallace's wife. He says, an assault on the king's soldiers is the same as an assault on the king himself. An assault on the king's soldiers is the same as an assault on the king himself. Now, from our viewpoint, who is more valuable to the empire? Most certainly the king. He is much more important than some low-level flunky in some backwater of Scotland soldier, right? But as far as law was concerned, to attack the one meant to attack the other. And that's what God is saying to Noah. Because man, because you are made in God's image, you are precious to me. And when someone attacks you, when someone kills you, I will require payment for that. I will require a reckoning. The image of God in man means that life is valuable. 
And so here, here's, here's some of the implications of that for us. Uh, right off the bat, we see that God determines the worth of human life, not us. Think about, just take a minute, use your imagination. I want you to think about how you, how you determine the worth of the people in your life or, or the worth of the people that you see, whether it's the, the, the lady at the gas station, uh, behind the cash register at Walmart, uh, the people in your house. How do you determine worth? What makes one person more valuable than another? In some ways, we do this rightly. In some ways, we do it wrongly. Obviously, my wife is more precious to me uh, than others. But if God determines the worth of human life, and I do not... um, then it means I need to be corrected, right? Think, so, so some of the ways that we measure the value of human life, probably the way we do it the most, is usefulness. What's your contribution to society, right? The person who contributes more to society is worth more. They are more valuable. Somebody who has greater use is more valuable, right? We we want to, we, the best players on the team. Those are, those are most valuable to the team. Everybody else can ride the pine as far as we're concerned, right? What is your worth? Your worth is determined by your usefulness. Along with that, we often determine worth by beauty or strength. These people are more valuable because they're more attractive or they're stronger or they're smarter, Right? They're innate qualities. We determine the worth of people that way. <clears throat> Sometimes we use innocence. And this is getting closer to a biblical ethic, right? These people are defenseless. We would use this argument maybe some for the preborn. Uh, someone must defend them. They cannot defend themselves. By the way, uh, that would not have been true in any society before uh, Christianity in the Western world. To be weak and defenseless was simply a liability. You were like the last person in line at the herd, right? You deserved to be picked off. Um, so that, that value of defending the weak is not... Uh, that, that comes from the Bible even if we don't necessarily acknowledge it. But um, those are the ways that we value human life. Worth, uh, um, usefulness, beauty, strength, talent... But God says human life has value and dignity not because of its usefulness or how attractive it is to us, but because each life bears his image. That means that the millionaire who generates jobs and the deadbeat who refuses to work are both valuable in God's Eyes because they are made in God's image. That is not the human way of thinking. Uh, the preborn, whose new heart beats feverishly in her mother's womb, and the dementia riddled 90 year old, whose heart will stop beating in a matter of weeks, both are valuable because both are made in God's image. Black lives, blue lives, American lives, Haitian lives, Korean lives, every life in between. Republican lives, conservative lives, all liberal lives, all life, all human life is made in God's image and is therefore valuable. Its value is not determined by our standard, it is determined by its creator who has breathed His breath. You know, there are only two things that God breathes into in Scripture. The Bible is one, 2 Timothy 3.16. Humanity is the other. We bear the image of God and therefore we are valuable. God is the giver and lover of life. And so what this command means then, moving to our second point, we are called to guard against the unjust taking of human life. When the command says, do not murder, it's a little bit more precise than the King James, which says, thou shalt not kill. There are types of killing in the Bible that are sanctioned. Public justice, holy war, 
Okay? These do not fall under this commandment. This commandment, the word for murder in Hebrew, refers to the unjust taking of life. This command covers both intentional premeditated murder and unintentional accidental manslaughter. Now, the consequences uh, are different. The judgment, so, so this law... Uh, again, as a summary statement, there are laws after this in Exodus that get a little bit more specific. Uh, one example uh, we could come to, if you flip over to Exodus 21, you'll read this weird command about oxes and goring. Uh, uh, Exodus 21, verses 28 through 29, says this, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, The ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. You see there how that law guards the unjust taking of human life. A couple of things that are interesting about Israelite law. One is that this law applies both to the high and the low in society. In other ancient law codes, the royalty got better treatment than, than, uh, than the peasantry. Right? If a peasant lost his life, uh, it just makes some financial remuneration. But if a, if a nobleman was killed, now there's the death penalty. But in Israelite law, all human life is valuable. In other ancient law codes, men were more valuable than women, but not in Israelite law. Man and woman both bear the image of God. Men and women both are valuable. Therefore, if life is taken, then the consequences must be paid. If it was an accident, then then the blood is required of the animal. But if the owner knew what his ox was prone to do and did nothing to stop it, then now the owner must pay with his own life. Life for life. Because human life is valuable and it needs to be protected. It needs to be guard against. And so, so every commandment has both the negative, what it prohibits, and the positive, what it allows. So the, the law doesn't only say, don't do this. It also says, do this. We should proactively work to safeguard life. That's why later on in Exodus you're going to see a law. We're not going to go over it because we're going to cover it right now. But there's a law in, uh, in Exodus where if you build a house, you have to put a rail around the top to make sure people don't fall off. Because in the ancient world, when it got really, really hot, you didn't have AC, you went out on the roof to cool off. And if you were a negligent homeowner and didn't have a rail out there and someone fell off and lost their life, that's on you. And so this command, do not murder, also includes the idea of protecting life. Do what you can to safeguard life. If you see somebody choking, do the Heimlich. If you see somebody unconscious, check them out. Go for Go try to work out CPR, right? Chest compression, something like, like this. All of that is included under the umbrella of do not murder. Not only are we not to take life, but we are to safeguard life. That is what this law, that's what this command means. So, I want you to think about some ways that this might apply today. Again, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Already mentioned one of the gravest evils of our current culture is that we sanction murder uh, for the unborn. Could be that God is calling you when He says, Do not murder, uh, to take up the cause of the pre born. We can't let this go silently into the night. And it is interesting that there are, if the numbers I read are right, uh, that, there, that the, the numbers of abortions are going down. That there are more young people involved in right-to-life movement than ever before. That um, 
that the march in D.C. on Friday uh, was filled with college students and high school students and younger. And so the message of life is clearer than ever. And it is because, as one pastor said, science is finally catching up with the Bible. When Roe v. Wade was passed, there were no sonograms. We did not know what was happening in the womb at 12 weeks, 6 weeks, 2 weeks. Now we know. Now we know that there is a living human being where before maybe there was some doubt. Now there is question. Uh, One pastor, Matt Chandler, even believes that possibly in our lifetime, uh, at least government mandated, not mandated, government approved abortion might end. Right? How beautiful would it be if the church was on the leading edge of that rather than playing catch up? Science is beginning to see what the Bible has known all along, that life does begin at conception. But pro-life issues, pro-life sinners uh, are not the only way to guard life. One of our ministry partners that many of you know... um, a lot about is Raleigh's place, right? Uh, when, James, in, 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 when James talks about defending the cause of the widow and the orphan, why would James say that? Why was that a major deal in the Bible? Because the widow and the orphan, as invaluable as they may be to society, are valuable to God and are worthy of His protection. And so we can engage in ministry to the orphan, foster care ministry, adoption, ministry to widows, these people are usually on the, on the outside. People who are usually marginalized and neglected. God says, no, their lives are valuable. Let's go to war for them. This is what it means to not murder. This is what the, this is what the sixth commandment truly means for us. It may be as simple as taking a meal to a widow and having a conversation with her. Life-giving in that way. There are numerous ways that we can keep this commandment. So how does Jesus define murder? How does Jesus deepen our understanding of this command? Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 21, our ladies are actually studying this section of Matthew's gospel right now, Sermon on the Mount, so... If you want a fuller treatment of that, ladies, you'll get there in a few weeks. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says this. You have heard it said, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Jesus doesn't change the commandment, but he does deepen our understanding of it. In fact, this is what it always meant. But in true human fashion, we like to make it about the externals. We like to make it about what's out here. Like, oh, well, murder is me actually physically with my hands killing someone. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't stop there. Jesus says, you murder, that we murder with our mouths when we denigrate and insult others. James 3, 8 and 9, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We murder with our mouths when we denigrate and insult and curse those who are made in the image of God. Steve, during our confession of sin, read from 1 John 3.15, we murder in our hearts when we harbor anger against a brother or a sister. We're crooked deep down, y'all. Jesus takes that mirror and he flips it over to its greatest magnification and he turns the light on and he says, this is you. This is you. 
Dermot Gosnell is not the only guilty person. Jack Kevorkian is not the only guilty person. They are not the only murderers. Kevin, you are a murderer. You are far worse than you could ever imagine. Human life is not as precious to me as it is to God. And if you're like me, then you're under the same judgment. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do if we're guilty of murder? And we are. Well, how do murderers come clean? Murder and all its cousins, abortion, suicide, euthanasia, racism, anger, bitterness, murder and all its cousins, these are not the unforgivable sin. Murder is not the unforgivable sin. It is a dark stain, but it can be cleansed. It can be washed away. And it is washed away because another person came. And he was murdered. In fact, his was the most unjust killing there ever was. And yet his life was not taken. It was given. Jesus was not a hapless victim. He gladly gave his life. He was murdered so that murderers could be forgiven. Every thought and intent of his heart was beautiful. He loved limitlessly. When it came to meeting the needs of other people made in the image of God, He healed. He blessed. He was flawless in heart. He was flawless in deed. He was flawless in speech. Jesus is the only anti-murderer that has ever walked the face of the earth. And then Jesus took the penalty for murderers. He was executed publicly, shamefully, scandalously. And he was murdered so that murderers could go free. So that those who routinely take life can now receive life and value life the way that God values life. That's good news. Do you believe it? Let's pray. God in heaven, your law is a weighty thing. And we are deaf and blind fools if we walk away from it with smug, self approving pats on the back. If we can walk away from your law and say, not guilty, then we're not paying attention. Lord, I pray that we would feel the weight of conviction, that we would know our disease so that we might look for the cure, so that we would look for life in the only one who can give it. Oh Lord, would you transform us by faith. Help us to believe in Jesus and be saved. And then, Lord, work in us a heart that loves life. That values your image stamped on every single living human being on the planet. Those who look like us and those who don't those we deem useful and those we do not. Transform our way of thinking, Lord. Lord, we pray in particular this morning for our country, for our participation in the evil of infanticide. 
Father, we pray for our streets, which run red with blood. That's the picture the prophets used in the Old Testament. They talked about people who sacrificed their children to other gods. Lord, may we see the culpability of our country and even of ourselves. And may what angers you anger us. What sickens you sicken us. And what you love would we love. What you delight in, would we delight in? Holy Spirit, would you call us to action where we need to be called to action? At the very least, may we be powerful people of prayer who daily seek your throne on behalf of those who are unborn but not just them the elderly the single mother those we usually don't see Lord that that you see whose lives are valuable may they be valuable to us help us to go to war Not with the weapons of flesh and blood, but with prayer and the Word. Just as our ancestors were known as those who would pillage the trash heaps of Rome to rescue the discarded babies, may we be those who pillage the ash heaps of American culture to rescue those who have been discarded, not simply the babies but the poor, the elderly, the disabled. All of these lives are valuable in your sight, Lord. May they be valuable in mine. May they be valuable in ours. May this truly be a sanctity of life. All life issue because life is good. And one day, someday, All of those who have come to you for life will rejoice in your kingdom and celebrate what life was always meant to be. Life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As our deacons come forward to take this morning's offering, uh, because it is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, Uh, We have a special guest with us this morning, Susan Scott. Susan, if you would, come on up. Susan is the director of CareNet, which is the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in town. Uh, Susan's going to talk with us for just a couple of minutes while, uh, as the offering is taken up and our music team will start playing when she's finished, uh, 10% of what is given today will go to CareNet. And so, uh, Susan, why don't you come up and tell us about the work that you guys are doing. Good morning. I just want to take this opportunity, first of all, to thank you all. This church has always been a big supporter of our ministry, of God's ministry at CareNet um, through your donations, volunteers. We even had a board member from here at one point. Um, And when I was praying about what to say here and doing some research, I came up with a quote and some stats and decided not to use them until until you were speaking. You talked about science catching up with, um, with all of us. We have always known that conception, that life begins at conception. And here's a quote. I won't read the whole thing because it's rather long. Let me see. It says, and this is from a scientist at Princeton University, Ph.D. type. Upon fertilization, parts of human beings have actually been transformed into something very different from what they were before. Excuse me. They have been changed into a single whole human being. During the process of fertilization, the sperm and eggs cease to exist as such, and a new human being is produced. To me, that's awesome. This is the first time I have researched and found such a quote from a secular source, secular person. And the stats that I wanted to go into, you talked about abortion rates going down. 
1990, in the U.S. alone, legal abortions, 1.6 million. In 2002, 1.31 million. 2013, 1 million. And in 2014, that was the first year on record that went below 1 million. That was 926,240. And then in 2015, 908,000. That's the last year. You know, they're typically two years behind with the records. Um, so that's, that's all the, um, that kind of stuff. I just want to tell you a little bit about our center. We are a Christian pro-life center. Free. Every, all of our services are free. We offer pregnancy tests, ultrasounds to women experiencing crisis pregnancies. And we offer post-abortion um, study groups and Bible studies. I do want to clear something up. A couple of times just within the last week I have been asked, does CareNet refer for, um, people, women, for abortions? And I would like to say absolutely not. Never, ever do we refer people for abortions. We are asked, and our approach to that is there's no hurry. Come in. Let us give you a pregnancy test to make sure. Let us offer an ultrasound. And then they can see, even at 21 days, you can see that little, that little beat, you know, and it's about the size of a grain of, excuse me, I don't know what's the matter with my voice today, a grain of rice. But when you blow it up on a big screen, you can still see that little, uh, that little twinkle. It's awesome. I had a testimony I was going to read, but I don't have time to do that. But, um, oh, your points are not up there, but about how does a murderer come to, what was that fourth point? Come clean. And maybe that's where part of the abortion confusion comes from, is with the abortion Bible study. It's called Forgiven and Set Free. I have seen lives change. Our nurse is one of those lives that has changed through that post-abortion Bible study at our center. She couldn't be here today. She has physical issues. I wanted to be, but maybe sometime when you've got more time, she can offer her testimony of not one, not two, not three, but four abortions in a family that would abuse her and then take her even over the state line um, to have abortions. So once again, I just want to thank you for letting me be here today and for your support. And the whole time you were preaching, I was thinking, I hope I don't trip up and down those stairs. And y'all were going to dress like this, I'd have dressed like that. You're awesome. Let's stand and sing.
Since tomorrow is uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, I would ask that uh, you take at least one meal, if possible, and fast tomorrow. Fast and pray that uh, the abortion industry, the legalized abortion, would come to an end, even, uh, even in our lifetime. Now receive God's blessing from Hebrews chapter 13. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As you leave, Susan uh, is going to be available in the gathering area if you'd like to learn more about CareNet. Um, Again, other ministries, Raleigh's Place. uh, There are so many ways to pursue this life.